0: My dreams turned to ashes, my castles all crumble. my fortunes turned to loss, so I wrapped it all in the rags of my life, and laid it
1: Father, we are thankful that Your presence has been with us through the week. We thank You for blessing us. We are thankful for the gift of the Sabbath day for rest and worship. Each day, as we rise in the morning, labor throughout the day, and lie down at night, we know that You are with us. You dis- You satisfy our souls. How wonderful it is to be able to turn to You any time and sense Your holy presence. Your love and guidance take us through all challenges and trials that the enemy can cast our way. Your loving kindness is more wonderful than life itself. We lift our hearts and hands to you. We desire to enter your gates with thanksgiving and enter your your courts with praise. You are the living God. Your life gives us life each moment. All honor and praise are yours. We pray in the name of Jesus who taught us these words to pray.
2: the number of questions Jesus asked in the four Gospels? I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. It's okay if you forgot. The answer is 307. Do you recall how many questions people asked Jesus in the four Gospels? That answer is 183 questions. Now can you tell me of those 183 questions, how many did Jesus respond to with a direct answer? At most, eight. Depending upon the scholar, it could be anywhere between five and eight. So let's say the answer is eight. In the Gospels, therefore, if the answer is eight, Jesus responded directly, at most, only eight times, which says that Jesus is 96% more likely to answer a question indirectly to answer a question directly. What I want to do today is first look at one of the few questions that Jesus answered directly. This particular question was in response to a question that in other circumstances, Jesus had seemed determined to avoid. After After his arrest, Jesus was first questioned by the chief priest and the elders and scribes from the temple in Jerusalem. The narrative is found in Mark chapter 14 and the high priest asked Jesus point blank, are you the Messiah? Before he was arrested, Jesus avoided conversation about his identity. For instance, in Mark chapter 1, after healing a leper, Jesus sternly warned the man not the man who was healed of leprosy not to tell anybody about the healing. Jesus did not want to reveal his divinity at that time. When Pontius Pilate asked him, "Are you the king of the Jews?" Jesus responded indirectly. He said, "That's what you say." But just after his arrest, Jesus responded directly to his interrogators. And he said, this is how it went. We read this once already, but I want to read this again. The high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. This time Jesus responded directly. He responded by saying, I am. Two short words that were a claim as big as the universe. His response reminds me of another time, just a few days earlier, when he was informed that his friend Lazarus was deathly ill Jesus then decided to go to Bethany to heal his friend but he stayed two more days where he was this situation was somewhat confusing to his disciples why I have an answer first it was dangerous it was dangerous for Jesus to go back to the Jerusalem area because the authorities wanted to arrest him And second, if he was determined to heal Lazarus, why did he take so long to return to Bethany when he knew that Lazarus was gravely ill? Time was of the the essence. He needed to return to Bethany before Lazarus died, you would think. We know the story. When Jesus arrived in Bethany, Lazarus was dead. Jesus then called Lazarus out of the grave, out of the tomb. He arose, and the whole area exploded in amazement, and many people believed. And Jerusalem, which was only a couple of miles away, was talking about it. And the Sadducees heard about it too. That's how that story goes. Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Oh my. The Sadducees differed from the Pharisees in very two important ways. First, Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. Okay? Second, the Sadducees were the majority party in the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a local autonomous governing council that the Romans allowed the Jewish people to have. Before Lazarus was raised from the grave, the Sadducees weren't very concerned about Jesus. They enjoyed watching the Pharisees get into a tizzy over the rabbi named Jesus we know that the Sadducees and the Pharisees were opposing factions. But with this event, this story, the situation changed dramatically. Now people all over Jerusalem were believing in Jesus. You can imagine, perhaps like I imagine, that can't happen if I was a Sadducee. Why? Because Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. So the Sanhedrin, which was populated as a majority by the Sadducees, determined, they joined forces with the Pharisees, and they determined to do something about the situation facing them because they were worried about losing control of the people. Do you think Jesus knew what he was doing? He was headed for a divine appointment on the cross. The time had come for the temple to be split in two. Everything about his kingdom was about to change. His kingdom was about to expand with power and authority. He was managing the situation expertly. He knew that performing a resurrection in the Sadducees' own backyard would get their attention. It did. The Sadducees combined forces with the Pharisees. A common goal emerged, uniting the two factions, which was to get rid of the populist rabbi who was causing all the commotion. It's not surprising then that Jesus responded directly to the religious leaders during his trial by telling them what they wanted to hear. They wanted him to say openly what he had not previously claimed directly and openly. They wanted him to claim that he was the Messiah. Jesus was managing the situation. He responded with the exact words that not only identified who he was from his own lips, but also the words that would cause his divine appointment on the cross to happen. And now we come to the final question Jesus asked before he took his last breath on the cross. For most believers, this last question stands alone. It stands with a raw simplicity that begs for us to make it easier to understand. You may have heard a preacher explain that Jesus was repeating the first words from Psalm 22, a Psalm of lament, when Jesus uttered his last question before he died. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 follows the typical pattern of a lament. I know these, the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a direct quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. Laments typically begin with an expression of grief, a voice of consternation that laments that God doesn't seem to be doing his job. Often accompanied with an insistence that God needs to be God. He needs to show us that he is God. Then a lament makes a plea that God will protect and provide and ends with an expression of affirmation and trust that God will protect and provide. This explanation says that Jesus knew this pattern of lament as would those who heard him. And even though he only quoted the beginning of Psalm 22, those who heard him would have known how the situation was going to end with a great affirmation of faith. Even if only the agony of the psalm was voiced, those who had listened to his words that day would have concluded his words in their minds with an affirmation of faith. This is one of the ways that many believers have come, have come to terms with the final question Jesus spoke in agony before he died. Other believers take another approach to understand what Jesus meant when he uttered this last question. They point out that since Jesus was speaking to his father, his words were an affirmation of faith. His father, who had seemingly abandoned him, could still be approached in prayer. His father who was absent was still his father. So Jesus could say, my God, my God. Even in that moment of agony, Jesus was making a statement of faith. It makes me feel good to consider these explanations. But for me, they still don't take away the sting from the words that Jesus spoke. They don't work for me. For me, his words remain full of intense anguish even after these explanations are provided. Is it possible to let these words from Jesus stand as simplistically raw as they sound? That's the way I understand his words. I believe that Jesus truly felt forsaken I believe that he felt an overwhelming anguish, overwhelming despair. Just consider for a moment that those words that Jesus spoke from the cross were a real sense of despair. That his words were spoken from a real sense of abandonment. An eerie darkness had fallen across the land And likewise, Jesus felt darkness as he faced death with a sense of being forsaken by everyone who loved him. His disciples had rejected him and run in fear. And he felt abandoned, forsaken by his own heavenly father. Have you ever heard the saying, misery loves company? We've all heard that. But let me tell you, it's only true to a point. Abject misery is far worse. Abject misery does not seek company. Abject misery knows no company. Abject misery is alone. Just as we come into this life one at a time in single file, so we die in single file. We enter eternity the way we entered life, one at a time, and if we leave feeling forsaken, death can be extreme in its loneliness as you get closer and closer to death. Oh, but you say, Pastor Michael, Jesus was different. He was the exception. And anyway, we are never truly forsaken. Isn't it true that God will be with us no matter what, even in the darkest time? Yes, but even though God is present, we can still perceive that God is absent. And that can be an agonizing thought. There are many people who have felt at one time or another that everything in life was against them, everyone was against them, They wanted to die. These are the thoughts of suicidal people without Christ. Who might be the most disillusioned about his faith when he felt the sting of being utterly abandoned? Who might it be that was unable to sense his father at all? That would be the one who had rejoiced the most in God's presence, the one who had lived as his son and walked with his father, that would be Messiah Jesus. For me, I need to let the last question that Jesus spoke before his death stand raw, not explained away as simply Jesus giving us a lesson in Lamentations. I see Jesus experiencing the full range of human emotion, which means that Jesus could surely experience a sense of abandonment, just as you or I or any human being could experience a sense of abandonment. He was human enough to experience being alone, and his loneliness was deep. He experienced bone-deep despair as he hung on that cross close to death as he uttered that final question, why have you forsaken me? For me, my personal interpretation as Jesus hung on that cross only minutes away from his last death is that Jesus showed his humanity. Very simple, not to be explained away. He simply spoke from his overwhelmed, heavy heart because of his humanity. Jesus had come to share the light of God with us. His last question as he died on the cross tells me that he understands me because he has experienced hopelessness just as I have. He's been where I've been. Where each of us has been, Jesus shared in human defeat so that we might in turn be able to share with him the victory, his victory over death. So, after Jesus arose, was he the same Jesus that he was before his death? Of course, the correct answer is yes. Did he, ask the same, did he ask questions after he arose? Yes, again. Asking questions was central in his life. It was a significant portion, a way of teaching for him. If he no longer asked questions after his resurrection, then he would be, have been a different Jesus from the one who had walked the earth. You might think that after his resurrection, he would only ask even deeper probing questions designed to elicit even deeper understanding. Doesn't seem to be the case. His questions after his resurrection were mostly just commonplace questions. When he met the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, for example, in effect, he said to them, What are you talking about? On another occasion, shortly after his resurrection, he appeared to his disciples and he asked them a question. Luke 24, verses 40 and 41. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything to eat? Does that sound like a question Jesus would have asked shortly after his resurrection? (laughs) Yes. By By eating with his disciples, he showed them that he was real. His resurrection wasn't just a psychological experience of their minds, it really happened. He wasn't just a figment of their imaginations. He was still Jesus. And even in his glorified state. He was still Jesus. He ate. Yet he. Seemed to suddenly appear. And disappear. As easily. As a thought. On another occasion. He made breakfast. For the disciples. Over a charcoal fire. While the disciples were out fishing. It's the last chapter of the book of John. Indeed, the scriptures affirm to us that Jesus lived again, just as you and I live, yet in a different way altogether. During that breakfast, Jesus asked a series of questions that I want to close this sermon series with. When the breakfast was almost over, Jesus turned to Peter and asked him. When they, finished, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? This was, this, this was the form of Peter's name that Jesus would use when he really wanted to get Peter's attention. It was a vulnerable question. Jesus had already shown his disciples that he still needed food. But here, when he asked this question, do you love me more than these? He showed an emotional vulnerability. We all want to be loved. Apparently, even the risen Jesus wanted to be loved. And Peter responded, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And to that response, Jesus asked a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter's response was the same. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But Jesus wouldn't let the question go. John verse. 21, verse 17. A third time, Jesus asked the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? It's not hard to hear the subtle irritation in Peter's voice. This time, Peter responded, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And Jesus answered, feed my sheep. For the longest time, I couldn't make sense out of this conversation. Wasn't telling with the seminary when I kind of began to understand. Why would Jesus ask the same question three times? There is a good reason that you may not have considered. The first two times when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Jesus used the word, agape, and both times when Peter responded by saying, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, he, Peter, responded with the word filio. Jesus asked Peter for agape love. Peter did not know how to give agape love starting to make sense. Peter, uh, I, I believe Peter did not know how to give agape love. Filial love shows warm affection in a close relationship. Peter was able to give love to Jesus like a brother, but he still didn't know how to love unconditionally. And Jesus recognized Peter's limitation. So the third time that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He, Jesus, asked this question the third time using the Greek verb philio. The third time, Jesus asked the question at Peter's level. Peter still wasn't capable of agape love agape love a discriminating affection which involves choice and selection it's unconditional love it makes sense to me now Jesus again showed his vulnerability but this time it wasn't his physical vulnerability it was his emotional vulnerability do you love me do you agape love me That's a question asked by someone who wants to be in a relationship with you. Someone who is willing to become completely vulnerable in order to do so. Kind of love from a husband to a wife and vice versa. This is who Jesus was and is the same Jesus who experienced humanity's deepest anguish and despair as he was forsaken on the cross is the same Jesus who makes himself vulnerable he is the same Lord who made himself to be a servant not a king we know eventually that Peter moved on. He learned about agape love. He, learned, he went beyond loving someone like a brother. We know that Peter had his mind opened, his heart opened, especially at the day of Pentecost when understanding came to all those disciples and they moved forward, learning to give unconditional agape love. We are now at the end of this message series entitled So Many Questions. Why did Jesus ask so many questions? It was his intent that his questions would guide our lives. Our joy and happiness depend upon understanding those questions and then living in a manner that answers those questions. When we follow Jesus, we learn to live the answers to the questions that Jesus asked. Amen. Hallelujah.
0: Son. His love endures forever. By the grace of God, we will carry on. His love.